Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You are listening to As a Woman, episode 133, Negotiation with Elizabeth Lemoyne. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to As a Woman. I am Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am your host. Today, I am happy to talk to you about something I feel very passionate about because I was really unprepared for when it came to my turn at the table the first time, and this is negotiation. Things you need to think about when you're negotiating a contract and you're thinking about jobs and employment and protecting you. There's so much that's not talked about when it comes to this. This episode will be specifically geared towards medical contracts, and I haven't done a non-fertility related topic in a while, so diving into this today. I have Elizabeth Lemoyne, who's my own personal lawyer. I adore her. She has spoken at Pinnacle Conference. As you know, this is our women's leadership event. She is all around a rock star. She's a partner at the firm Wick Phillips Golden Martin in Dallas. She specializes in health law and business litigation and has a special interest in provider employment agreements. She works with physicians and company agreements, policies, procedures, disputes. She's fabulous. A little bit of a background. She's from North Carolina. She went to Duke. She got her law degree from George Washington University Law School and her LLM in health law from Loyola University in Chicago. Here she is. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me on the As A Woman podcast. I have wanted to have you on the show for years, and I'm so, so honored and excited to sit with you today. Thank you so much, Natalie, for having me. It's a pleasure as always. I adore you. And I always say you helped save my life, getting me out of bad contract situation and really helping me be empowered enough to make my own choices and to negotiate for things that I wanted and needed professionally in my career. So I really wanted to dive into your take on negotiation and your take on contracts, because I know personally, when I was leaving fellowship, nobody talked to me about contracts or negotiation. My upper level fellow was like, here's the lawyer I used. And I called this person that I think I've told you this and you're probably going to vomit as I say it, you know, charged me $300 to like review the contract and make like whatever random little edits. And I think that probably should have been a big red flag. They weren't really spending the time on it or giving me the advice that I needed. But I think that's a very common thing in medicine specifically is that we end up not knowing what we need or what to look for or what those contract red flags are. And I'm sure you've seen that professionally as well. Am I right? Yes. Actually, 
I think this is one of the more rewarding things that I do in my career is helping physicians, particularly young physicians in starting out with the first job or transitioning to joining a practice or starting a practice and helping them navigate all the different things that come up along the way. No lawyers sometimes get a bad rap, but we do go to school for a period of time and have to be licensed <laughs> and that sort of thing. So there are things that we're useful for that we do. And one of them is definitely having somebody both review and then advocate for you in connection with your employment agreement. So let's start by saying, number one, I think we're easily going to be in agreement by saying before you sign your name on a contract, you should absolutely certainly have a lawyer on your team to review it and give you advice and recommendations. Am I right? Absolutely. And I think word of mouth is probably the best way to get somebody not, you know, your brother's friend that, you know, is the lawyer, but maybe uh, drafts wills and doesn't do employment and physician employment agreements at that. So I would check around your personal networks, social media networks to ask for recommendations for people who have experience in negotiating physician agreements. And then also like everything you get, what you pay for, there is a difference between your um, will that you get from the online software versus Mm -hmm. the one you prepare with an estate planner. And this is the same thing. You, You really do get what you pay for. So let's just ask a few things. So if we're starting out and I'm trying to find a lawyer to help me out, and let's say somebody has been recommended to me and I'm, what am I looking for though, to make sure that there may be the right person for the job? Is there just certain interests or certain experience that I should be aware of? I think the first thing you do is in reaching out to the person to check responsiveness. If the person doesn't respond via email or phone within 24 hours, that's indicative of how the relationship's going to be. And then they should be available to answer any general questions that you have and just how you feel about this person. If you like the person, have good rapport with them, and you check online to make sure that they have the right credentials, ask them about their experience in this particular area, whether it be employment agreements or anything. And then once you've done that due diligence combined with getting a reference or getting the contact from a reference, you should feel pretty comfortable. Okay. Tell me this because I don't know the answer when we talk about physician contracts specifically. Are there state-to-state differences? Do you need somebody who's in your state or does it not necessarily matter? There are differences in state-to-state. You can use a lawyer in another state from your state. I've worked with attorneys in different parts of the country provided that they know the law in that area. And so obviously I think that it's most important to have somebody with experience in physician employment agreements, first and foremost, and then somebody that has familiarity with the law, you're sufficiently comfortable that they're going to get up to speed in that area. Because there are some things, for example, in California, there are no non-competes. Oh, I wish I was in California. Yeah, that's not the case in other states. Okay. So I think, you know, first and foremost, we're saying somebody comfortable with healthcare, physician contracts, employment agreements, but then also at least familiar, even if they're not in your state, you might say, hey, I'm in Texas. I know this is your expertise, but do you feel comfortable helping me if I'm in whatever state that it applies to? Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's march through some of the things in the contract because I think, you know, everybody is expecting, oh, the contract's going to talk about 
like money and time off. And those are the things your eyes go to first. But there's some nuances to the contract that I know you think are actually more important about your rights and your autonomy and what happens if you exit that relationship. Because there's a startling number of people in medicine, I think it's like 70 to 80%, if not higher, that leave their first job, right? And so there's a very good odds that you may be negotiating your way out of that contract at some time. Yes. I feel a lot like an insurance policy where you buy the insurance, not because you want to use it, but to help in the best, a worst case scenario. And this is the same way where you want provisions of the contract to protect you as much as they can in the worst case scenario. And so if you kind of back into it that way, it changes your mentality. And then also too, I think the audience and who you're going to work for is important to know. And it's important to consider when you're looking at a job. You, an institution that you're going to work for, you're going to be less likely to have wiggle room and negotiating power as opposed to private practice. And so you have to keep an eye on that as well. And then, yes, there's way more to this. And we'll probably, you have more specific questions than just money, when I'm going to make partner and how many days off I get. So I think let's, let's start with some of those things. I always think it's really important. And this is something that's always bothered me about medicine is people are so secret, secret, hush, hush about like what is industry average or what are your peers making in other places. So I always recommend if you're trying to get into an area, see if you can find people who had recently joined that market or somewhere else in the state and see if they will share what our average compensation or track to partnership look like. Most of us joining private practice We'll leave academic hospital stuff out of the conversation because mm-hmm. it's different. But most people joining private practice are looking for some opportunity to become a partner at some point. I'm sure you've seen a lot of red flags or variations when it comes to that. What is your advice when you're looking at that option for a partner? Like what are things maybe somebody should be looking for or what are red flags potentially if you see it? I think the how the practice acts during your contract negotiation is indicative of how they're going to be in the partnership round. That's so true. Very <laughs> difficult. Yeah. If they're really difficult to deal with now, it's only going to get worse. And so it's better to wait to get the right job than to take a job just to have a job. Totally. I think it's hard to realize that when you're right out of training and you've got loans staring you down the throat and the whole thing, but it's way better to wait that nine months than to take a job that's awful. You quit after a year and then you have this horrible non-compete for two more years on top of that. Right. It could really limit your ability to practice or grow a patient base or take care of people in the long run. Right. So, okay. So when you're negotiating the contract, you're going to have something written in about partnership. But I think that's a really great piece of advice is that the tone and the approach to how you're being treated during that initial contract negotiation are your, you know, requests being belittled? Are you being like gaslit? Are you being told you're making a big deal out of certain things or putting the wrong priorities first? Those are probably huge red flags that that practice and your priorities aren't going to be aligned, right? Yeah, I'm nodding, nodding, nodding. These are all the things that I think people hope will get better and they never do. And also secrecy, I found, is really disturbing. I can understand wanting to keep certain financial information private, but if you're joining a practice with the expectation of becoming a partner, they need to be willing to put their cards on the table and say, this is 
what the practice looks like financially now. This is yes. the expectation for when you buy in. I can understand and agree with not promising a buy-in after a couple of years. It may not be a good relationship, right? Exactly, exactly. But if that's the goal, then you need to have an idea of this is how we do our buy-ins. This is the formula it's based on. This is what it's going to look like for you. These are the criteria we're going to look at in considering partnership. And if they cannot articulate those things, then I think it's a big red flag. So I've seen a lot of people's contracts in my industry where it'll say partnership will be offered at three years. And that's literally all the thing. Our, our partnership you know, has the potential to be offered, but it says nothing about those points you just made. Well, what criteria do you determine if I'm able to receive it? What's the buy-in going to look like? What are the basic terms? So I agree, like it doesn't have to be guaranteed or maybe all written in there, but it needs to be transparent because the last thing you want to do is work your butt off at a place for years. And then suddenly it comes to that partnership moment. And it's something very different than you had in mind or something that is going to make it so that that's an impossible reality. Why do you spend three years working at that place? And unfortunately, that happens all too all frequently. The time. Oh, and all I, the time. I don't think it needs to be in the contract, but the conversation absolutely needs to be had. And if they are cagey about it or won't give you the information, then I would pursue other opportunities. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No mind shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash AAW and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. 
The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. So I wonder your advice on this because this is happening a lot in the fertility industry as people are joining practices. So let's say they join a private practice and then that private practice gets bought out by like a private equity backed corporation, right? So the people who are already partners benefit largely. The people who are just employees essentially have their contract sold out from under them and Is there any advice you could say that you would recommend somebody who's joining a private practice in this current environment could put in the contract to protect themselves in that circumstance? This is a really, really tough issue. And I've had several clients that have come to me when this fact pattern happened. On the negotiating end, what I try to do for clients is there's a provision contracts that talks about assignment. As a physician, you can't assign that contract because you're providing personal services. But your employer, there's all different sorts of language. And I try to control the language about assignment where they cannot assign the contract to, for example, the new private equity owner. Or if they can assign it, then you have certain outs. For example, if they choose to assign it, then your non-compete goes away right? or your non-compete is limited to a certain time period or narrowed in scope that there's some give and take there to protect you. Because that's not what you were joining initially. Exactly. Exactly. It's not the deal. And you usually will get pushback on it, but be mm-hmm. firm and your chances are if the practice wants you and if it's a place you want to be, they will come, you can come up with something with them that will work. That feels fair because to the practice owner, I mean, in reality, part of what they are selling is you. You're part of the equity in the practice, right? So they they need you employed, but they also don't necessarily want you easily out of the contract. But I've seen so many people of recently sign a contract and within their first few months somewhere, the ownership is totally changed and they're in this position where they didn't want to be. That's not what they signed up for, but they oh, their non-compete still holds or these other things. So I think having a little bit of forward thinking, especially in these fields like infertility, dermatology, you know, some of the ones we really are seeing private equity money coming mm-hmm. into, you should try. And I would say if somebody's so hesitant, they won't even come to some fair middle ground with you. I'm curious if they're already on in discussion on the back end, right? right? And I think that that's a fair conversation to have as well, is where do you see this practice in one year, five years, 10 years, and make sure that that aligns with your goal. There are some people that they don't want to be business owners. They just want to see patients. Yeah. They're perfectly fine with the private equity model. There's other people that are not. And you should know that 
for their benefit too, but mostly to know if this particular path is in alignment with your goal. Completely, completely agree. I think sometimes we look at a place and we're like, this is how it's going to be. But practices are dynamic and things change and you need to make sure that you're protected to the best of your ability in those circumstances. Okay. The non-compete, my least favorite issue ever, ever, ever. Okay. So we're here in Texas and Texas does have, you know, non-competes are typically upheld to some component. What about when somebody is, is signing a contract and let's say you're signing it in the state of Texas, the idea of there'll be no non-compete it's usually going to be pretty hard to get away with, right? Most contracts are actually going to have a non-compete or am I wrong? You are correct. The only contracts you will see without a non-compete are ones where if you have some sort of income agreement arrangement with a nearby hospital, for example, where the Mm -hmm. hospital is guaranteeing your salary, those agreements cannot have non-competes because there has to be an ability for you to continue to serve the area to work out that whole situation. So really, those are the only ones I have seen that do not have a non-compete or income guarantee agreements. I've seen that in like general OBGYN, right? Some of the hospitals here will income guarantee an OBGYN to join a practice for X years. So you're saying that person in theory could not have a non-compete. They won't. The hospital will make it a condition to say that we're giving, you know, Dr. Crawford, we're guaranteeing her salary because we need her services in our area and it's defined by the law. And so for one year and then three years after, regardless of whether Dr. Crawford works for you in fertility practice or not, as long as she stays in the area, whether on her own or with another practice for the remainder of those four years, then we will forgive this money. So in that respect, they will demand that there not be a non-compete for the extent of whatever that term is. is. Yeah. Okay. So if you're not in that situation, right. your contract's going to have a non-compete. You are, I have, I don't think, I think I've had one client who's a practice who did not have a non-compete. Okay. Everybody else does in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And so non-competes are upheld in the state of Texas. The one weird nuance in Texas is you have to be given an opportunity to buy out the agreement. And if you were lucky, get an employment agreement where your employer did a DIY deal and did not include a buyout, then sign away because your non-compete is void as a matter of law. Okay. So if they forgot, if they didn't, you know, read that that Texas clause is different than the employment agreement contract they got on the internet and they didn't have like a, you can buy out your non-compete for XXX dollars, then just sign it. It's not enforceable. Right. It's not enforceable. When they try to go to court to get the injunction, you bring the case, there is no non-compete. You're allowed to compete. So assuming they hired a lawyer to do it, (laughs) assuming you don't have an income guarantee, then a court is going to hold uphold a reasonable non-compete. Usually rule of thumb is two years or less. If you have a three-year, five-year non-compete, those are only stand a chance of being upheld if they're part of a larger, for example, partnership agreement where you're receiving equity. Those are a little bit different because it's not an employment agreement. But for focusing on employment agreements, two years or less is generally going to be upheld. Radius-wise really is depending on where you're practicing and what your specialty is. And it's a pretty technical issue, which again is important, why it's important to have a lawyer look at this on your behalf and negotiate with you and, and sit down and plan out, okay, if this practice doesn't work, where can I realistically go? And can I 
craft this non-compete in a way that preserves that opportunity for me. Do you find that most people are able to negotiate the non-compete in some form or fashion from what is originally presented to them, whether it is in time or in radius, or there's some circumstances where it's truly, this is it, take it or leave it? Usually in larger groups, for example, the private equity practices or one that's tied to health system, they are less likely Take it or leave it. Yeah, take it or leave it. Other practices generally are willing to negotiate in some circumstances. And there have even been tweaks that I've been able to put in. For example, if you just decide you don't like me and fire me without cause, then I don't have a non-compete. It's only if you I quit for no reason or you fire me because I'm a bad doctor or I broke the law or whatever, then I have a non-compete, but otherwise I don't been trying to do that. I've also post-COVID have been trying to put in that if you have to let me go due to an act of God, including an epidemic. Like a force mohair clause or something, right? Exactly. That you've got that clause and you're out of your non-compete that way. I've tried that as well. Okay. It's varying degrees of success depending on the employer. Yeah. And then what about thinking about scope of practice, right? So I've seen people who like are infertility, for example, who maybe can't do IVF under their non-compete, but could provide like basic gynecology services or some way where they could still, you know, make an income or have some form of a practice in their non-compete term. That's an option sometimes too, right? Absolutely. That's an excellent idea for people. They may be fellowship trained people that also have board certification in another area to do that. I've also seen scenarios where you work for a large practice and you say, fine, I won't compete by going to another large practice, but this non-compete doesn't prohibit me from working in a practice by myself or with up to three other physicians. Because it's not really competitive to the large group. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I think though, anything else on the non-compete area to kind of have I advice on? I could bend your ears for days <laughs> and days and days and days about a non-compete. But I think the bottom line takeaway is look for the requirements in your state. It's always going to be driven by reasonableness and always try to negotiate. Worst case scenario is they say no, and then you can decide do I really want this job badly enough that I'm willing to put up with this or no? Okay. And then just to, for clarification, people who are newbies, newbies, right? The distance is always like radius, like as a bird flies, right? Meaning Exactly. You can go Google online and pick the address point and say, I want you to draw a circle of how many miles and you'll see on a map exactly where it is. And you need to be careful in reading it because it may be more than one location. Yeah. I've seen like some fertility clinics have 12 locations in a city and you're only out of one or two, but they restricted you from all of them. That doesn't seem fair to me. It does not. And that would be a pretty good case for challenging the non-compete, but in most States, they're not going to get rid of it altogether. But They just may draw it to that 10 miles from where you're, yeah, where you actually treated patients. Okay. So look at the radius, look at the time. I always say, from my experience, a year goes by really quickly. You know, there's a lot of things you could do in a year to kind of bide some time, get the next thing started, keep momentum going. Two years becomes harder, right? So I think if there's a way to get it down to less time, that's always highly appealing. Absolutely. And then, like you said, try to brainstorm different creative ways to play around with it. Like you're restricted in doing certain procedures or for a certain subset of the community to still give you an ability to earn a living during that time period. Okay. Last non-compete question, but I get asked this one all the time and I don't honestly know the answer. 
What about telemedicine? How does telemedicine impact a non-compete? So if you can't see patients in a 20-mile radius from your practice, can you see them on telemedicine? That is an excellent question. And there is not a whole lot of case law on this because telemedicine is a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I am not really seeing it being addressed in the employment agreements I'm looking at lately. When it's come up to me before I have counseled clients, make sure that where you're set up to see the patients via telemedicine is outside of the radius because that's an easy fix. Yeah. And that you're not targeting patients inside of the radius. If you can, within licensing guidelines, see patients elsewhere and you set up your telemedicine office outside of the radius, that's the safest way to go. Okay. So it's kind of a gray zone, I'll say, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I would say too. Okay. I'd love your thought on the non-solicit, both of like there's non-solicit clauses of patients, but one thing that I learned about was non-solicit of staff. And so that's in a lot of contracts. But one thing I didn't think about that potentially, let's say my partner did, was that what about the staff that you brought in there, right? So you go and you get your sister who's a nurse to come work at your office, but your contract has a non-solicit of staff for a couple years. Now your sister can't go work with you if you leave unless there's some provision about staff that you brought in or some carve out. Is that correct? That is correct. And non-solicits are a lot harder to crack and courts are a lot more lenient with what they allow. And so you really need to be careful both. I mean, there's kind of the staff perspective as well as the patient perspective. And then there's the referral relationship. And you need to think about ahead of time. Yeah, if you're bringing anybody to the table, you want to have them carved out of this non-solicit. I also recommend putting in that if a patient comes to you, that it's clear that's not soliciting. If the patient finds out you're gone and then learns through searching your Instagram, that yeah, your Instagram that you went, you know, 10 miles down the road and the patient shows up at your office, that's not soliciting. But I, I find it, I want to make that clear on the front end so there's no confusion. Go ahead. I was going to say, don't you think that this is a good reason where in the modern world, a physician having their own like social media presence or website or some public facing way to reach patients, not individually soliciting them can be extremely helpful in the circumstance of leaving a practice? Oh, absolutely. And I think that what you and a lot of your colleagues have done in developing social media is great for diversification on a lot of different fronts, but that is a big one. And I've also tried to write in in non-solicit provisions that there's nothing that prohibits you from general solicitation to the community. So if I wanted to send a blast email to everybody in a certain zip code, that would be fine. I just can't tailor it to the physician that practices patient list. Okay. What about, and then in some states like Texas, you're obligated to notify your patients if you are leaving and seeing patients at another place, correct? Correct. And that is an important opportunity. A lot of people view it as, oh, that's a huge pain. I'm just going to let my employer handle that if I leave. And that's a terrible idea because they control the narrative and they can say, they write the contract, they get to do it. They can say whatever they want. And it's really hard to unring the bell. Whereas if you write it where you control the narrative or worst case scenario, you agree to the verbiage ahead of time, that makes your life a lot easier down the road. 
Okay. I think that's a really good point because in the state of Texas, like the burden of notification lies on the physician, not the practice, right? So ultimately it's your responsibility. You should be the one controlling what is being said versus somebody else. Absolutely. And there needs to be, and it's important to know what the rule is in your jurisdiction because there's also a posting requirement. And so both from like the classified ads, I did do the classified ads. Do you remember that? that? Isn't that crazy (laughs) that it's like the paper of the largest circulation they have finally added where you can post it on your um, website. But that is a very recent occurrence. (laughs) I remember being like, I don't know how to make a classified ad. Let me go figure that out. So funny. Okay, let's switch gears for a moment to one of my favorite topics is intellectual property because I understand a lot of people's contracts are maybe some templated contract or they come, you know, from prior employees. And maybe that was an era before social media, before podcasts, before some of these other outreaches that we are seeing physicians like myself and others undertake. And there's a lot of intricacy to who owns the intellectual property when you're an employee at a practice. Is that correct? That's correct. The general rule of thumb is this concept called work for hire. And the idea is anything you create within the scope of your employment belongs to the employer. And it's a gray area whether or not your podcast as a physician is considered work done for your employer. You could say, no, but I did that on the weekend on my own time. And then the employer says, but yes, in your employment agreement, you said you were going to exclusively provide medical services for us. So your podcast, you could only do really well if you're a physician. You said contractually, you were only going to be a physician for us. Ergo, your content is ours. Okay. So I found this to be, I mean, you and I both know I have seen contracts fall apart because employers like will not budge on that. And to me, that's a huge red flag to your autonomy or your creative rights. If this is something that you want to do or you're potentially passionate about in the future. So intellectual property, you told me a phrase that I use in talks all the time that says, you know, just because it's not written that it's yours does not mean that it's yours, right? Like you cannot assume just because there's no blurb on an intellectual property section that you're going to get the rights to it. To your prior point, that's not the assumption at all. Unless it's written in there that it's yours, it actually could be the opposite. Absolutely. And that's when I look at contracts for clients, when I get to the part about working outside of the practice or what happens to speaking engagements, honorary, that sort of thing, that is the time to have that conversation. There are some people that all they want to do is see patients and that's great. And so then they're fine, whatever's there. But if you've got anybody that already has or even thinks they might want to foray into social media or work where they can use their education skills and training in a way outside of the clinical setting, get it negotiated ahead of time because you're never going to be able to go back and get it done. Yeah, they and never agree to it. You got to do it on the front end. Yeah, I say once you're successful, everybody's going to want a piece of it, right? There's no way they're going to give it up. So I think what you just said is so important because me who signed my first contract, you know, back in 2015, could never foresee maybe some of the things I'm doing now that I love doing, right? So you have to give yourself the opportunity to grow in this space and maybe not just presume I'll never want to do those things because they could be very broad. 
Maybe it is podcast. Maybe it's Instagram or YouTube. Maybe it is writing a book. Maybe it's speaking. Maybe it's being on boards for industry and being consultants for industry things. Maybe it's being, I don't know, a coach or teaching a course or having something that potentially falls under your level of expertise. So for me, anything that's fertility potentially could be up to grabs to an employer unless it's written out otherwise. Exactly. And it can be from carving it out, or if you're just not sure and think you may want to explore these options, then maybe you define the agreement in a way that the services that you are providing are, are very clinical specific. medicine. Exactly. And that you can do whatever you want to outside of the four corners of this very specific definition. I think that's a really good advice. On the same kind of breadth, but maybe it's under the definition of services. I've seen a lot of physicians lately who maybe have a side gig in a national like telemedicine company. So they kind of provide, you know, for extra money, you know, let's say that you're a fellow and you provide services for a company that, you know, helps counsel people on fertility and you schedule these little 20 minute appointments and you're off time. So it's your off time right now, you keep the money. But officially that's medical advice and medical services. So if that's something that you do or you potentially want to do, that could be a tricky area for an employer who wants you to provide exclusive medical services for them. Absolutely. And that's particularly a situation where you need to be upfront and get it straight. Because one issue I could foresee being a problem is, let's say, right or not, a patient that has been a telemedicine patient decides that you have somehow committed malpractice or committed medical negligence, and they come after you, then you've got an insurance problem because has your telemedicine company provided malpractice insurance from you? Or is it your employer paying for it? And if your employer winds up being stuck with a claim that they never even knew about because they didn't know you were practicing telemedicine on the weekends, that's a big problem. Oh, it's such a good point. So I think I always tell people in my personal experiences that, you know, transparency and being upfront is what serves you best here. Hey, I love doing X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. This brings me a lot of personal satisfaction and professional joy. How can we make sure that this contract allows me to still do that, but fulfill my obligations here as well, right? Hiding things always makes it more sketchy. Absolutely. On on everybody's side, it's much yeah. like you don't want to join a practice where they're sketchy about partnership. You shouldn't expect them to be excited about hiring you or keeping you on when you're doing all these things on the side that they don't know about. Totally. And so I think that that is just so interesting. I always tell people, you know, as a owner on the other side of the table, you know, we really want, I would really love when we bring in, you know, new younger physicians, I want them to be able to be creative and I want them to go do the new trendy things where patients are and think of creative ways to market and reach patients. I mean, that's free marketing for me if you're posting on Instagram and bringing patients to my practice, right? Like if you're providing good information that makes patients want to come be your patient and you be their doctor, then that's good for you. That's good for the practice. So that's a win-win for everybody. And I've seen a lot of people though say, well, my employer says they're, you know, afraid I'm going to post something unprofessional or there's some concern about the content to which I'm always on the sense of, 
They're going to trust you to provide appropriate patient care and represent them to care for your patients, but they don't think you can make an appropriate Instagram post. Like obviously if they don't think you can do that, they shouldn't be hiring you as a physician, right? Bingo. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I a thousand percent agree. And I think that now people kind of the old guard didn't really understand what a gold mine on a lot of different fronts social media is both professionally and for their practice in generating mm-hmm. patients. And so my thought is now they realize the importance, but they're not willing to quite get with the times as far as understanding there's got to be give and take and how they can use this, but still give the person the ability to be creative. Not everybody is in tune as you and your practice are, I should say. (laughs) But I think that sometimes if you phrase it in a real, you know, what are you really concerned about? You know, if you don't trust my professionalism, should I be a physician here, right? There's got to be some mutual trust and autonomy to grow in a practice in a multitude of facets. So I always think that's where, to one of your original thoughts, is that open discussion when you're in the contract negotiation stage about what your goals are and what you're trying to achieve is really important. You're with these people more than you're with your family a lot of times. And so you would absolutely ask these questions of a future partner or spouse. So why not ask them of your employer? I completely, completely agree. I guess because it you don't know how and you don't want to seem greedy or arrogant or full of yourself, right? So it's just such a delicate balance when you're brand new to that contract negotiation world. Because in medicine, we didn't negotiate anything. We went through a match. We signed whatever contract the hospital gave us. And that was all we knew. So now we're like mid-30s people who have no idea how to do this skill. Well, I think what's interesting too is the younger physician forgets that that older physician was just in your spot at one point in time too. Yes. And had the same concerns, the same hesitation, the same just trepidation about the whole thing. And so view them as a human that's been there too. And I think if you come at it from that angle and not as this is some omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful person that I have to try to please then it it changes the dialogue. Okay. And then what about how do people protect, you know, let's say their quality of life or, you know, kind of their, their other things? Because I know that sometimes it's really hard to understand. I, you know, I negotiated really hard on, you know, one contract to have a full day a week off, you know, and people are like, no, you work this many days. And I was like, this is all I'm willing to work is four days. I've got kids and I can't do more. But if those things, if they're, not written in there and somebody just tells you you can work four days and a half day, that's not really potentially going to be the situation unless it's in the contract on the scope of what you're working, right? A thousand percent. You need to think about and get clear. Actually, I was doing some mentoring with a younger attorney earlier today, and I talked about how don't try to please everybody so you burn out right out of the box. Yes, yes. But then also be really clear about what you want out of your career and be upfront about what needs to be done to make that happen. And in your contract, once you've gotten clear that because I have young children, I'm only doing four clinical days a week. Well, then that's what it needs to be. And if somebody just says, oh, yeah, 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 and it's not written down, then it's not going to happen. It's got to be in writing. I mean, I think that's so important when it comes to all of these things about like bonuses, sign on things 
time off, vacation, CME, kind of these parts of the contract is that it really needs to be clear and written in there. Otherwise, it may not be as it said. Exactly. And be prepared, know how it's set up to be prepared that it may change. And certain larger practices, for example, they can't just offer you a 401k plan. They've got to treat you the way they treat everybody else. So yeah. you're going to want to know up front, do you have a 401k plan or not? And how long does it take for me to participate? And what are your benefits now? How have they changed? And use also in negotiating compensation, consider all those things have value. Right. And so in looking at total comp, you may be able to negotiate one offer against another or one that may be less money but has this huge, wonderful benefits plan with tons of paid time off may ultimately be the better choice. Right. So don't just look at that salary number, but really put it all together for what you're looking for, what your goals are, what your lifestyle is. Because if you're working, you know, 80 hours a week, it doesn't matter all some of the other stuff. You're not going to be able to get to it, right? Exactly. Exactly. What about when we think about one kind of question I have is the idea I've had some people and personal experience where it's like, okay, you could be a W-2 or you could be a 1099, right? They're very different ideas if you're going to be like an employee under a W-2-based contract or if you're going to be more of a contractor hired to do X job or whatever. What are your general thoughts on those? Is there any like warnings to people or pros or cons that people maybe should be aware of if they're in a situation where they could have either? The important thing to know here is just because an employer puts a label on something doesn't mean it's so. Okay. I can call you a 1099, <laughs> but if you're working for me 40 hours a week and I dictate what you can and can't wear to work and what your job duties are and that you can only work for me, well, the government's going to get really mad when they find out that you've treated this person as a 1099 and they're really a W-2. Okay. There is a list that the Department of Labor has of all these criteria that they look at in determining whether or not someone should be categorized as a W-2 employee or a 1099 contract. General rule of thumb would be if the person is only working for you, it doesn't have the ability to work for anybody else, chances are they're a W-2. If you are dictating to a large degree what the person's job responsibilities are and how they do their job, mm -hmm. chances are they're a W-2. I think of 1099s really as more of somebody, a consultant, somebody yes. that's coming in for a finite period of time. Like locums or something like exactly, that, right? Exactly, you're only doing a few hours. They may be working for other people too. And you're not going to be there forever. And okay. if it goes much beyond that, then you really need to talk to your accountant and an employment lawyer to make sure that you're classifying the employee correctly. Okay, that makes sense. And then what are, what are we missing? What are other big red flags or big advice to somebody you have when we're starting to think about contracts? I would, and we've touched on this, but assuming making assumptions mm -hmm. about certain things, whether that be, I'm going to assume things, these people will get nicer once I start working there. They don't. Or <laughs> I assume, or I assume because they told me during my recruiting visit that I'm going to get five weeks off, that that's what it is, even though that's not my employment agreement or any benefits manual, or I assume that the office has maternity leave policy. Because mm -hmm. who doesn't have a maternity leave policy? You'd be surprised. Medical offices. Um, yes. Yes. Small businesses, because there is no requirement 
federally, some states may differ, that there's no requirement for long-term leave outside of FMLA, which doesn't apply to most small businesses. You've got to worry about that in negotiating an agreement, both as a potential parent, but also as a caretaker. If you have an older parent or family member that you're going to need to be responsible for taking care of, you're going to want to set that expectation and get that set up on the front end to make sure that you have the time and the space that you need to care for that person. Great advice. Um, And I, I think kind of the big pictures are, or the big takeaways here are, Take the job you want. Don't try to make a job into something that it's not. Mm -hmm. Be very transparent about your needs, wants, and expectations, and then make sure it's all in writing. And of course, have a lawyer look at it for you. I love it. Elizabeth, will you tell everybody, you know, where they can find you if potentially they're looking for a lawyer or where they can learn more? Sure. I am on Instagram. I'm not as um, disciplined as you are, Natalie. So <laughs> it's very intermittent, but I do check messages frequently. It's at Lemoyne Health Law, Lemoyne spelled L-E-M-O-I-N-E. And then you can also, I work for the law firm of Wick Phillips. You can reach me through our website there at wickphillips.com. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for spending the time listening. I hope you learned something and enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. As always, you can follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Check out the YouTube channel at Natalie Crawford MD as well. Thank you, friends. Mm-hmm.